We are moving on today um, in our foundation series to the topic of prayer. We're moving on from the Ten Commandments, but we're not quite yet moving out of the book of Exodus. Couldn't quite uh, give it up yet. And so if you'd turn with me for our Old Testament reading to Exodus chapter 32, and we'll read the the first 14 verses of this chapter. It's a well-known story, kids. Listen to the story. You've probably heard this before. This is the story of the golden calf that the people of Israel made at the foot of Mount Sinai. So hear then the word of the Lord. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. So Aaron said to them, take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons and your daughters and bring them to me. So all the people took off the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool and made a golden calf. And they said, these are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. When Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it. And Aaron made a proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings. And the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people, whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt, have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. And the Lord said to Moses, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, therefore, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people, whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? Why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out, to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven, and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring, and they shall inherit it forever. And the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. We're going to be uh, spending the rest of the year, really, um, except for uh, when, when we uh, come to uh, the Christmas Eve service, in, in looking at the Lord's Prayer and the various parts of the Lord's Prayer as, as Jesus has taught us to pray. And while we do that, outside of, of some Advent readings that we'll do, we'll also be reading uh, prayers that we find throughout Scripture. Um, where, where people pray, and we have the, 
the, the text of the prayer. You know, sometimes we're told that people called on the name of the Lord or they prayed, but we don't have the actual prayer. Well, there are many places that we do. So we're going to be looking at those in tandem as an example for you of what prayers can be, what they can look like, what they can include. Now, this is a well-known story. This incident with the golden calf as the people uh, turn away from God right at the foot of the mountain. As, as Moses is meeting with God up on the mountain, they create these idols. And so they, they add these idols to their worship. They worship them. They bow down to them. And God is angry for this. He speaks to Moses, right? And he says, you brought these people up out of Egypt, right? Your people, and look what they're doing. He's angry. He's, he says, let me alone that my wrath may burn hot against them. And I may consume them in order that I may make a great nation of you. Right? The Lord says, why don't I start over with you, Moses, and we can get rid of all of these idolatrous people down at the foot of the mountain. Now, God did this much like when uh, the angel of the Lord comes to Abram. And he speaks to him about what's going to happen to Sodom and Gomorrah. And he gives him an opportunity to, in a sense, come into his counsel and to make requests of him, knowing what's going to happen. So the Lord does the same here for Moses. The very fact, by the way, you know, we may read this and think, look, God changes his mind because Moses speaks to him. And, and it's not quite true. The Lord never changes his mind. But What's happening is God is bringing Moses into his counsel. This is all part of his plan that he would work through the intercession of Moses. And so Moses, being brought in, prays. And the prayer that he offers is a prayer of intercession, where he stands in the gap. He stands in front of God representing the people. This is foremost a picture of Christ and what Christ does for you, his people. He stands in your place, represents you, pleads your case. That's what intercession is. It's standing in the place of another, representing another, pleading the cause of another. But this is also an example for you. Part of what God intends for you, his people, is that you would be a priestly people. And as a priestly people, you have been brought in a sense into his counsel. He, he desires that you would stand in that place that Moses stands. You, according to the New Testament, are a royal priesthood, right? a, a kingdom of priests. There's no priesthood in the New Covenant in the same way that there was in the Old Covenant, but you are still a kingdom of priests, each of you in Christ being given the priestly function. And that means that God desires that you would stand in prayer on behalf of others, that you would come into his presence, draw near to him, and present the case of others, the, the requests of others. You, like Moses, can intercede on behalf of others. You can intercede on behalf of the rest of the church. Even, you know, I just mentioned before that we met as a presbytery, 
Maybe you don't go to the presbytery meetings. Maybe you are not involved in that at all. But, but this is important work that the church does in ordaining men. You might you know, wonder sometimes, how come sometimes denominations over time falter? Right? They, they move away from a firm uh, love and hold on the truth of God's word. Well, it often happens on these levels that maybe you're not a part of. But guess what? You can can intercede on behalf of the the rest of the church, the the wider body of the church. You can uh, go into the presence of God on behalf of others, remembering the promises of God, pleading with God for his mercy, all for his name's sake, just as Moses does here. And this is what God has always intended the church to be, always intended the church to, in a sense, stand in the gap for the sake of the world. You're meant to lift up prayers then, we're told throughout scripture for civil rulers, for neighbors, for your nation, asking God to be gracious and kind, to do justice and show mercy, to withhold his wrath in the name of Christ, and to punish those who do evil. As priests, you can also hear one another's confessions of sin and pray for one another for spiritual healing. You know, there, there might be times that uh, you feel particularly burdened by sin and, and, or because of the nature of the sin. You feel that it's necessary that you speak to the elders of the church, to me as a pastor. But you're called in Scripture also to confess sins to one another, to pray for one another that you might be healed. When you do that, when you confess sin to each other, you then can pray together, to pray for one another, to plead the mercy of God on behalf of one another. In that sense, standing in the gap for others, representing them before the throne of God. So prayer is, in part, intercession, right? Just as Moses does here. This is one of the many privileges that you have as God's chosen people, that you could stand before the face of God, without fear of punishment. And you could stand with confidence knowing that he desires for you to to be in this role, to, to stand in the gap, to pray for others, to intercede. We'll find. Well, if you would turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 6. I'll read for us the sermon text, which is Matthew 6, verse 5 to 15. Hear the word of the Lord. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room. And shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. Pray then like this. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. 
Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. This is God's holy and inspired word for us this morning. As I mentioned earlier, we've uh, come to a new portion, the the final portion of the series we've been working through this year. If you're uh, just joining us today, we spent some time working on uh, through what it is that we believe as Christians. What is it that we hold to? Core theological commitments, core biblical commitments. And we did that by working through the different parts of the Apostles' Creed. We then looked at the Christian life. What does it look like to live as a Christian in the Ten Commandments? And now uh, we come to the Lord's Prayer, which is really the, the heart of the spiritual life and worship of a believer. This is the heart of what it means that you are in communion with God. What does it look like to be a worshiping creature with a relationship to the divine? It looks like prayer. And the Lord's Prayer is the central place that we've been taught about what prayer looks like, what it, what it means, what it is at its core. Now, all of Scripture can direct us and help us in prayer, but most explicitly, we've been given this prayer as our model. Now, what is, what is prayer exactly? We use that word a lot. What is it? Uh, the Westminster Shorter Catechism, uh, which maybe some of the kids here have memorized, it defines it like this. It says, prayer is an offering up of our desires unto God for things agreeable to his will in the name of Christ with confession of our sins and thankful acknowledgement of his mercy. You can find, if you go to the church website, you can just ask your kids if you have kids in the catechism class, but if you go to the church website, there's a tab of resources and Sunday school links to a YouTube page where you can listen to this in song form to the tune of I'm a Little Teapot. I'm not going to sing that for you now, uh, but if you want to memorize it that way, that is available to you, and I would encourage you to memorize this definition. It's very helpful. Right? Prayer is, is an offering, right? an offering specifically of our desires up unto God. But it's done for things agreeable to his will. It's done in the name of Christ, right? by his name, according to his word. It includes confession of sins and it includes thankful acknowledgement of his mercy. Another way that we could define prayer is that it's a kind of dialogue with God. A kind of conversation. The church father, Clement of Alexandria, put it this way. He says, prayer is a discourse addressed to God. It's speaking to him. He has spoken to us and we speak to him. We speak to him. We ask of him. We praise him. Prayer in many ways, then, is at the heart of worship. It's at the heart of the worshiping life. It's what it means and looks like to have communion with God. 
Herman Witsius, a Reformed theologian, says this. He says, with regard to God, prayer is a most important part of worship by which he commands us to do him honor. Hence, the whole of worship is described to be calling on the name of the Lord. We hear that phrase in the beginning of the book of Genesis where we're told, and at that time, people began to call upon the name of the Lord. People began to, to worship God, to commune with him. This is represented most clearly by our prayer. Prayer is the heart of worship. In fact, all of worship we could call prayer. Everything that we do on a Sunday morning together, we could call this all corporate prayer in many Christian traditions even today, but especially down through history, have simply referred to times of worship as services of prayer. This is to commune with God. Prayer is to commune with God. So if prayer is at the heart of worship, what brings life to the rest of our worship, corporately and individually, then it's of the utmost importance that we know how to pray. And so Jesus teaches us. Jesus did not leave us uh, to, to figure this out on our own. He's taught us how it is that he would have us pray. Now before we actually get to how we are to pray, we're going to start where he starts in the Gospel of Matthew with, with ways that you shouldn't pray, right? In a sense, and, and this is something that happens throughout the Sermon on the Mount, which is where we're jumping in, in Matthew 6, Jesus is in some ways clearing away some of our uh, predispositions, some of our own ideas about what it means to pray before he fills us in with how he would have us pray. So he clears a lot of things out of the way. And here he says three different ways that you should not pray, right? How do you prepare yourself to truly learn how to pray? And that's what we're going to focus on today. How do you do that? Well, first, the first thing that prayer is not is that prayer is not an if, but a when. Two times in the text, as we read it, you heard Jesus say, when you pray. Prayer is not an if, but a when. In other words, prayer is not optional. Prayer is not something that maybe some Christians do, right? The good Christians, they pray. No, this is at the heart of what it means to be in union with God. It's not something that you can give or take. You don't get to be a Christian that reads a lot, studies a lot, learns a lot, knows a lot of theological truths, but doesn't pray. A praying Christian is a phrase that is really redundant. Of course a Christian prays. That's what it means, in essence, to be a Christian. To be a Christian that doesn't pray would be to speak of a mute singer. If prayer is communication with God, a part of your relationship to Him, then not to pray would functionally say that that relationship is broken. Right? Your relationship to God is broken down in some way. Even in human relationships, we know this. Right? In your homes, it, with your spouse, if you're not talking and communicating to each other, 
It's a sign that something's going on, right? If somebody that you've had a relationship with doesn't speak to you, you know something's wrong, something's broken. This is how we, we commune with one another most centrally is through communication. Right? If, if a, a father and a son or father and daughter are not speaking together, right? if a father finds their child and they're refusing to talk to them, you know there's something wrong. There's something going on. Those who have a good relationship, a close relationship, communicate. A Christian communicates with their heavenly father. This is the sign of having that deep and close connection with him. The fact that many of us spend very little time in dedicated prayer, that we find prayer to be difficult, is probably an indictment on us and our relationship to God. How many of us find it difficult to pray? How many of us find it difficult when we pray at length, you know, even on Sundays when we spend extended time in prayer? It's difficult, isn't it? It's difficult for us, it's true, but, but prayer should be something that we, we desire, right, that we want to participate in. Why? Because it's, it's communing with, communicating with, dialoguing with our Father in heaven. It's not to say that every verbal prayer has to be really long, right? Sometimes prayer is hard because it goes on too long. I mean, that, that does, of course, happen. But the prospect of longer prayer, the prospect of spending extra time devoted to prayer... It really shouldn't bother us at all. It should be something that we desire. When Paul says to pray without ceasing, that shouldn't be such a shocking statement to us. We should long for such a thing. And I'd encourage you, meditate this morning on your prayer life. Right? Do you desire prayer? Do you, do you long to draw yourself into the presence of the Father that you might present to him an offering of your petitions, your desires. Prayer is a when, not an if, in part because you were made to be a praying person. And on some level, everybody knows this, right? We all know this to a point. Almost everybody prays some. Uh, even those who say that they don't pray, they probably pray some. Uh, they might not realize exactly, you know, what it is that they're doing. They might not call it prayer, but they do pray. Maybe they pray to the wrong person. They direct their prayers improperly. They pray in an erroneous fashion, which, you know, Jesus is going to tell us. There are ways to pray that aren't right, ways that you shouldn't pray. Uh, but there is a sense in everybody that you should pray. Even the short and sudden uh, thoughts where you just want to, you just want to give thanks to someone or, or something great, or you, you feel connected in some way when you find out that somebody uh, has, has uh, died or somebody's struggling through some kind of grief or sorrow, and your, your heart just goes out to that person that's, that's suffering. 
there's, there's a, a sense in which you, you want to do something, even from a distance. You want to, you know, you, so you, you think about them maybe. Or there, there's something in us that wants to present our, our desires, our wishes, our petitions somewhere to someone. I think this is because we're made to pray. And so in that way, praying should be much more natural for us than it often is. And it's all the more troubling that we often don't desire it or practice it. Prayer is at the heart of worship, which means that without prayer, our worship uh, will be, in a sense, left lifeless. Right? It's flatlining. If this is the heart and there is no heart, well, then everything else stops working. Prayer is like the oxygen that feeds the fire. It's the power behind the rest of our worship. And it's seen in each part of our worship. Again, because, you know, in a sense we could say it's all prayer, but how, how much of what we sing is prayer? Right? How much of what we, we, we think is just us, us praying? Our thanksgiving, our praise, all of this is in a sense elements of our prayer. So prayer is not optional for you. Right? Prayer is not an if, but a when. Jesus says, when you pray. Secondly, prayer is not a show. Jesus teaches that you must not be like the hypocrite who he says makes prayer into a show. Read with me again verse 5 and 6. And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrite. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret, secret uh, will reward you. The origin of the word hypocrite was in the, the Greek theater. It's a, it's a theater term. Sometimes when we talk about somebody that we think is a hypocrite, we might say they're, they're two-faced. And this, too, in a sense, is very right. Uh, because it, the hypocrite was an actor. Uh, the hypocrite was one who played a character on stage for all to see, but wasn't that character in real life. Often, they would wear a mask, right, to show that they were something other than they actually were. That's what a hypocrite is. And so they put on a show, they put on a performance for all to see, but it's not real. Jesus says that many in their prayers are like hypocrites. He says, don't be like the hypocrite. So what do prayer hypocrites do? Well, specifically, Jesus was speaking of the religious leaders and others who would stand where they could be seen the most and heard the most in their prayers. They'd make loud prayers, in a sense, on a stage, right? On the street corners where everybody would look at them. Everybody would hear them. They did it for applause. They did it for people to see them. So they pray not as to be heard by God, but they pray so that they can be heard by others. The prayer is not then directed to God, it's directed to an audience. Jesus says that if you truly want to be heard, instead you should go into secret places, go into the closet, he says, and pray in secret to the God who hears in secret. 
And you don't want to misunderstand this, right? This is one of those places where, you know, we read scripture in light of all of scripture. It's very easy when you just have one verse to take it out of the fuller context and misunderstand. Jesus doesn't mean you can't pray publicly and you can't pray with other people where they ever hear you. Uh, He can't mean that because Jesus himself very often prays where others can hear him. Sometimes, like in the case of when Lazarus died and he's standing outside the tomb praying, he even says to the Father, I'm praying so that everyone here can hear me, right? He, He prays for their sake so that they would hear. So there's a teaching function of prayer. There's a, a, a necessity for certain kinds of public prayer. So what, what is Jesus saying? Well, his point is that when these men would pray as hypocrites, they were praying for the sake of being heard by others, not to be heard by God. If prayer is in essence communion and communication with God, then if you pray not for that in that spirit, but as a show, well, then you've missed it altogether. It was not God-centered prayer. It was not God-glorifying prayer. They did it for their own glory so that they could be seen as if they were on a stage, as if the spotlight was on them. But in prayer, the spotlight is on God. It's to be directed to him. It's to be for his glory. It's to be for things agreeable to his will. So it's not about you. Now, you are a part of it, right? Because it's it's relational. It's communication. Of course, you're a part of it. Of course, those you pray for are a, a part of it. But it's not primarily about you or them. It's focused on God. The end of prayer is not your glory, but God's. Sometimes you might pray to be heard by praying for specific things that you know people around you are going to like, right? Things that you know will make everybody else think really highly of you. Maybe it's some kind of particular political cause. Maybe it's praying uh, in such a way that someone can hear you and they They just think, wow, that's a really holy person. That's a really incredible person. Look at all that they do. You pray as to be heard. Maybe you uh, pray about something that's going on in your life, not so that God will hear you and help you, but because you really want other people to know. You want them to be more involved. You're you're kind of using prayer as a a passive-aggressive device to make other people act on your behalf. Or how often do we use prayer just as a a way to gossip, right? This is the classic, the classic of, you know, you know, we really need to pray for so-and-so because we all know what's happening to them and here's all the, you know, horrible things in their life and you're not saying it because you care about them and you love them and you you want God to heal and help them. You're saying it because you really want to talk about the dirt. We do that, right? We use prayer as a show. We don't do it for the reasons we should. We don't do it for God's glory. You know, and we don't often you know, do it in the way that we're out on street corners praying loudly so that all can hear. Maybe there are some that do that, but that's not, that's not common for us. 
but we very easily, even while we are praying, take the focus off of God and put it on ourselves. Think about, even, even in subtle ways, think about times when you're praying in a group, you're praying for something, and because you know that you're going to be praying out loud in a group setting instead of listening to the prayer of another and, and, and joining in with them and, and amening what they're saying in your heart, all you can think about is what you're going to say and how you're going to pray out loud next because, because you want to be heard well. You don't want to slip up and, and sound silly. It's subtle. It's small, but we do that. Right? Where, where it becomes about us. It's a good desire to want to pray well, right? As long as the end is, is the glory of God. The end of that desire is Him, and not just to look good in front of others. This is why often simple prayers, especially as you're learning to pray, are, are exactly what God wants. Right? It doesn't have to be a show. You don't have to prove your, you know, in-depth knowledge of of scripture or of, uh, of some kind of theological understanding of the sovereignty of God and, and how he works through prayer. You just simply offer up to him the desires of your heart that you know to be agreeable to him. And, and you do so in the name of Christ. You simply trust him and love him and communicate as you would. Maybe like, you know, a, a child communicating with their father when they're young it's the communication isn't the clearest. That's okay. It's still a relationship. It's still, you know, communicating, right? It might be a little bit more of a kind of, you know, you don't really know what you're saying, but he knows, right? He understands. So there's much more that we could say, but all of it really comes down to this. Prayer is not to be made into a show. It's not a show for others. It truly is communing with God. Lastly, prayer is also not to be mindless. Look back at verse 7 again. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask him. So Jesus uh, speaks of, you know, this way of praying that was maybe more common amongst the religious folks in uh, the, the Jews themselves, um, something common, you know, maybe you could say in the church. And then he turns to the Gentiles, to the pagans, right? How is it that they pray? They prayed as well. They worshiped as well. But what, what did that look like? Well, they did this kind of heaping up of empty phrases, he says. And this could have come in multiple, you know, different forms. Sometimes maybe it was just the, the you know, extending of prayers, making them long and, and kind of verbose just for the sake of, of them being long. But even more probably, this is referring to a, a kind of, you know, practice of, of endless babbling. Um, sometimes it was maybe even incoherent, but even if it wasn't, it's just that the repeating of something over and over and over and over again, saying the same thing over and over again. You almost get a picture of this if you think of the, the story of Elijah on Mount Carmel with the prophets of Baal, and they just keep 
throwing up the same prayer over and over and over and over again to Baal. And nothing happens. And whereas Elijah simply prays, right? After mocking them, he just prays. And God answers. Uh, it's, it's much more simple. It's much more straightforward. Uh, so it's very likely that there was this kind of just mindless, empty repetition of phrases or words where the content of the prayer doesn't matter as much of, in a sense, the experience of it. Right? Or the, the fact that you're just building up the word count because you think that's why God will hear you. Maybe you don't even have to mean anything by it. There doesn't have to be any heart behind it or any thought or preparation. There's no standard by which to judge your words. It's more so about the, the feeling, the experience, rather than what is being communicated. And it's more about a, a misunderstanding of what God is like rather than simply trusting him. This is a constant temptation in, in different ways, though we might not always recognize it. This sense of just going on and on and on in prayer because you're not sure whether God is truly listening, whether he truly hears you. It's not uncommon down through history, even in many quarters of the church, uh, to think that this is kind of what we should do in prayer, that you just pick a word or you pick a phrase and you just repeat it over and over like a mantra. You just keep saying it over and over until, in a sense, it just it changes your state of mind. It, it does something to you. You have some kind of experience because of it. It becomes a, a mystical thing that, that doesn't, the content doesn't matter, right? What you are praying doesn't matter. What you're communicating doesn't matter as much as what you're receiving out of the experience. The emphasis then of prayer turns to, in a sense, your own passions or your own misunderstanding about who God is. And that doesn't mean that your understanding doesn't matter. Your understanding very much matters. Um, it doesn't mean that your passions, your affections don't matter in prayer. They should. Ideally, in prayer, uh, you know, mature prayer, just like mature communication, includes the, the heart, the affections. It includes the mind and, and understanding. It includes... Uh, actually how you verbalize and communicate something. And it includes even physically your body, your nonverbal communication. That's what, that's what mature communication, it includes all of it. But here, those, those things don't matter as much. All of you can and should ideally be engaged in prayer, the, the whole of who you are should be engaged. And removing any point is not, it's not truly mature prayer. But the point ultimately is not your experience, right? It's not, it's not what you receive out of it necessarily. The judge of whether or not God hears you is not some kind of internal sense of change. It's not the word count of what you're saying. That's not why he hears you. You know, repetition too, if this, if this was, and it does seem like there was a lot of this in the ancient pagan world, this kind of endless repetition of things, these mantras that you would just say over and over. And even repetition is not necessarily wrong as long as it matters and it's going somewhere. It's actually communicating something. Right? We find repetition in Scripture. Think of Psalm 103, where over and over we have the repetition of the statement that his steadfast love endures forever. But along with that, there's movement. Right? Along with that, there is there is 
a remembering of all that God has done and, and a statements about his, his kindness, his character, his forgiveness, his, his glory. There's more to it, in other words. There's more thought and intention and careful reflection upon his works and character. The problem here would be repetition for repetition's sake, right? as if the words themselves don't matter, that they don't have to mean anything. They don't have to be sincere. But when your child comes to you and endlessly repeats to you something over and over and over and over again, do you love that? Right? Is that, is that something that you enjoy? No. Right? It doesn't mean you, you know, you just, you know, say, nope, you, I'm not even going to talk to you anymore. Right? Even in our feeble prayers, God listens, but but what you do is you help them learn how to, as they grow, communicate better, more, more clearly, even if they repeat the same thing. And it, it does have meaning. At some point you say, that's, that's enough. <laughs> you don't have to say that anymore. I heard you the first time. How often do you say that as a parent? I heard you the first time. Well, that's true of God. He hears you from the beginning, not because of how much you say, not because of repetition, but because... He is your father. Why did the pagans do this? Right? Why were they doing this? What, what does Jesus say? For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Right? They did it because they wanted to be heard. Because they thought that, that there was a better chance that God would hear. Or the gods would hear if they did it this way. But what does Jesus say? Don't be like them. Don't be like the hypocrites. And don't be like those who, who simply repeat or, or extend their prayers so that they might be heard because of how much they say. Why? What's his reasoning? What does he say? Because God already knows what you need. Prayer is not then for God as if you need to inform him about something. Right? It's, it's for him in the sense that it's for his glory. It's for his delight because he enjoys it. He wants you to speak to him. But it's not for him as if he's without knowledge and you have to you know, fill him in with what, what really needs to be done. No, he already knows. He knows what it is that you need. In this way, prayer is actually for you, but it's so that your heart can be aligned with his, so that your desires can be aligned with his, so that your mind can be aligned with his. It's so that you can share your needs and learn to trust him. It's a means by which then you communicate with God. It's, it truly is communication. Sometimes prayers can be longer, Right? We, we're going to see that in some of the prayers that we read in this series. You, you can find many prayers in Scripture that go on at length, much longer than we're used to praying. But God doesn't listen to you because of the length of your prayers. He doesn't listen to you because of your eloquence. He doesn't listen to you because of the, the theological language that you use. He doesn't listen to you because you repeat something over and over as if to wear him down. He listens to you because you're his child. 
because he's your father and he delights to listen to you and he delights to give you good gifts and he delights to communicate himself to you. He is your father who watches over you and protects you, who's working to help you to grow into maturity of faith like Christ. That's why he wants you to pray. That's why he wants to speak with you. And isn't that good news? Right? Isn't that good to hear? It's not because of doing things the exact right way. It's God wants you to pray. Yes, and there, there is a proper way to communicate, but just as you would teach a child as they grow, the appropriate forms of prayer, the appropriate ways to you know, express themselves to you, ways to communicate things that maybe they don't know, know how to yet so that that, that dialogue can get deeper and, and richer and that fellowship will be closer. In the same way, Jesus Christ teaches you to pray because he delights in you, because he wants to pray. He wants you to pray. He wants to communicate. Whether or not he listens will not then be based on your proficiency because you are his child. So as a child of God, uh, prayer is not an if but a when. Of course you're going to talk to your father. Right? Of course you're going to talk to him and communicate to him. You should be communicating with your father in heaven. Uh, but it is truly communication. Right? It, it's not done as a show for others or in order to give yourself uh, some kind of experience or, or spiritual high, but rather true communication of your needs and love, your praise and thanksgiving, all to your Father, right? to your God, to your Lord, but to your Father. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, teach us. Teach us to pray. Teach us how we are to pray. Help us, Lord, in those ways, uh, the ones we've spoken of today and the many other ways that we either don't pray or, or we pray in ways that, that you don't want us to. Teach us. Teach us, Lord, what it is that you would like us to pray and how it is that you'd like us to pray and who it is that you'd like us to be in prayer. And help us, Lord, to grow. Help us as your children to grow up in the maturity of faith, the maturity of prayer. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen.